My dear friends, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Vito and I want to welcome you to this time together. I am really happy to be with you, Renaissance Church. Um, it's my privilege to have gotten to be with you in person in the past, and I wish I was with you in person right now. But the next best thing is for us to be together virtually like this, um, and I'm really glad that we get to be here like this. Um, I do wish we were in person. I love coming out, and I want to say to members and friends of Renaissance, welcome. I'm really glad that God has brought us together. And I also want to say to visitors, uh, I want to say welcome to you as well. I'm really glad we're here together. Maybe a friend sent this along to you. Maybe you stumbled upon it by accident on the internet. But when it comes to people hearing the good news of Jesus, I don't think there are any accidents. So welcome to you. Welcome to each person. And I'm glad to be here with you. Today, we're going to look together at a parable. Every parable told by Jesus presents you with a choice. It presents you with a fork in the road in which you can choose to go one way or another. The truth of the spiritual life is you can't be neutral. You can't remain unaffected by the claims of Jesus. And so we all have to go one way or another. Every parable demands that you and I make a choice about our lives. Every parable demands a choice from us, but I also know that every parable reveals this truth as well, that God has made a choice about you. I really do believe that. I believe that every parable reveals that Jesus has made a choice about you, and maybe that's no better seen than in what we call the parable of the prodigal son. Because in the parable of the prodigal son, it is revealed that God is like a father who stands on the porch and scans the horizon— looking for his son who left with half the family fortune, but he's waiting and hoping and praying that his son will come back and he wants to spend the rest of that fortune on a welcome home party. I love parables like that because they tell me that that's God's perspective towards me, the choice that he's made, that when God stands at that fork in the road and he has a decision on whether to turn his back on us when we've turned our back on him, or to welcome us back and do everything in his power to reconcile us to him, that he's chosen to welcome us back, that he has made a choice for you. That is true about you, no matter who you are. If you're hearing this, God has made a choice for you. So the parables reveal that. God has made a choice for us, but many of the parables also reveal that you and I have to make a choice about our lives too. God has chosen to love us, and now we are asked if we're going to make the choice to love him back. And the parable we're going to look at today presents that choice to us. So I'm going to be reading to you from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This is a parable that Jesus tells near the end of his life that talks about that choice that we have. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, 
There will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. My dear friends, this is the word of the Lord. It's been given to us in love. It's completely trustworthy. Let's pray together. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I lived for three years in Princeton, where I went to seminary. That's where I met Christian, your pastor. And one of our favorite professors while we were there was our preaching professor. His name is Dr. Cleophus LaRue. He taught us a lot. He was one of my very favorite professors. And one of the things that he told us often was this. I can hear him saying it to me in my mind now. He said, Vito, don't preach a three-point sermon. Don't preach a two-point sermon. You have to preach a one-point sermon. He told that to us all the time. And what he meant by that was not that you couldn't use the device of points to illustrate what you were trying to say in your sermon. What he meant was this, that every sermon should have one controlling thought, one central message, which wraps up what the preacher's trying to say about the good news of Jesus that it shouldn't meander all over the place, a string of pearls with no string, that you should have one central point. So I'm going to try to be a good student of Dr. LaRue today. My sermon today just has one point. I'm going to follow that advice, but I'm not going to follow some other advice that some of my other preaching professors gave us. Because we had a few professors that said this, you know, in a sermon, you shouldn't give every way, everything away at the beginning. You shouldn't let your audience, your congregation know the main point of your sermon at the beginning, because if you do, then there won't be any anticipation. There won't be any buildup. You're going to lose your hearers. If you give it away all at the beginning, you're going to lose your audience. They won't listen to you. But I am not going to obey that advice. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to tell you my main point right up here at the front. And I feel comfortable doing that because... See, my professors, they never got to know a congregation like Renaissance. They never knew that there was a congregation that was so thoughtful and wise and attentive. I know I'm not going to lose you guys. I'm going to tell you the point right here at the front. It's true. Some congregations wouldn't be able to do this. I trust y'all with this, though. So here is my one central message. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this not just from me. I want you to hear this as God's speaking to you. I believe this is true that the one central message of this sermon and that what God is speaking to you today is this, that the best thing for you to do is to choose Christ over all. That God is asking you, he's calling you right now to choose Christ above all things in your life. That the best thing that you can do with the time that you have left, the time allotted to you by God, is to receive God's love for you in Christ to love God back in Christ, to walk with God in Christ, to spread that love through you. The very best thing you can do with the time that you've been given is to choose Christ. And 
in the time that you've been given, you only have today. We all know this. That in the time that we have in this life, what has gone before is already past. We can't get there. The tragedies and the triumphs from the past, they're gone. We can't get there. And we look out into the future and none of us is even promised tomorrow. There's nothing that we can do then which is going to affect us spiritually. The only day we have is today. Today, if you hear his voice and his voice is speaking to us now, this is the main and central message. You should choose Christ over all. And I want to talk about what that means. I don't want just to tell you to do that and then leave it. I want to talk about what that would mean in our lives. And the way that I'm going to do that is to look at the story, the parable that Jesus told. So let's take a look at it here. You heard in the parable of a bridegroom and you heard of bridesmaids. And so you know that this is a wedding scene, but there's some details here that you'd only be familiar with if you knew the protocol of weddings in the first century in the ancient Near East. It went a little bit like this. There were two houses. Imagine the house of the groom, the bridegroom, and the house of the bride. Here's the first house, the house of the bridegroom. And here's the second house, the house of the bride. The party began at the first house of the bridegroom. Family gathered and friends, and the feast began, but it didn't begin in earnest because the bride wasn't there yet. She's here in the second house. She's at the home of her family. She hasn't made it there yet. The groom has to go and get her. So he would travel across the village or maybe to the other village, and he would go and he would pick up the bride. He would gather her up from her home here and then bring her back. And of course, when they got there and they picked up the bride and on their way back, you know this to be true, they took their time getting back. They went through all the little routes. They went down little alleyways. They went everywhere so they could celebrate. They were going by their friends' houses and their family's houses. People would come out and toast them. They would cheer them on. They were celebrating on the way. They would not take the shortcut. They would take the long cut. And it might be a long time before they got back to that first house. We know that that even happens now. If you're part of a wedding party and you rent a limo, you take as much time in that limo as you can get. You take the long way home. That's what the bridegroom and the bride would have done coming back. So that brings us to the bridesmaids. The bridesmaids here are at house one. And each one of them, of these 10 bridesmaids, they have a lamp, a lantern. And these lanterns are burning and they have to because this is the ancient Near East at night. This is the kind of darkness that you and I probably never experienced now, but they did. And so they had these lamps and they were burning, but not all of them had enough oil. Some of them maybe had never been to a wedding like this. Some of them maybe didn't know the protocol quite as well. Five of the bridesmaids brought extra oil, five didn't. So as the night wore on and the night went longer and longer, the bridesmaids went to sleep. Their lamps were probably still burning. But then the shout goes out. The bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. And so the family and the friends come out from the house and the doors are flung wide. They're ready to receive the bride and the bridegroom back. And now the bridesmaids get up and they trim their wicks and they get ready to go in. But five of them find out that they don't have enough oil. They ask the other five who have more. Those other five say, we don't have enough for you and us. You're going to have to go get some of your own. So they hightail it through the village they're going to beg, borrow, or steal oil where they can get it. But by the time they get back, 
They've come to the door. The door has been shut and it's too late. They knock on the door and they say, Lord, let us in. And the voice comes from the other side. The bridegroom says, I'm sorry. I don't think I know you. So that's what's going on in this parable. And the symbolism of the parable is pretty much agreed upon by almost all interpreters, old and new, Catholic and Protestant. Most people agree with the general uh, tone or the general application of what the symbols are. Here's what they are. The bridegroom is Jesus. He is the Lord of the feast. He is the one going to get his bride and bringing her back. When we look at this story, the bridegroom is Jesus. The bridesmaids are you and I. We are waiting for Jesus to come. We cannot see him, but we know that he's going to come. The wise bridesmaids are those who have chosen to do everything they can to be ready for when he returns. They know that there is no greater joy than to be in that wedding feast. They're going to do everything that they can to make it so that they are there. They're waiting for him and they're looking for him. They have enough oil for the whole night and they are going to be ready. That's the five wise bridesmaids. The five foolish bridesmaids are those who've gotten distracted and those who have not prepared and those who have not placed their eyes on Christ, those who have not really waited. They've gotten priorities mixed up and they've chosen other things besides waiting for the bridegroom to come back. And in terms of the timing, that door being shut, what does that symbolize? There are a couple of answers to that. Some people think it's the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes back and that's when the door will be shut. Other people say that it's at our death. When our days are over, then the door is shut. I really think that Jesus is being ambiguous here. It's either of those. The point is you and I only have so much time. You and I know that we only have so many days to choose what is good and what matters and what is truly joyful. We only have so many days to do that. And if you truly want to choose what is good and what matters and what is joyful, it is to choose Christ because all good things are captured, are united in him. And so you and I are called to choose Christ in the moment that we have now. And there will be a day when it's too late to choose. There will be a day when that door is shut. And I know that that's really dramatic language. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but we just know that that's true. You know that your time is limited. When you're 18 years old, it looks like your whole life is going to extend out into eternity. But the older that you get, the more that you realize you only have so many days. You only have so many opportunities to choose Christ to choose what is good. And so that's the call of this parable. With the day, with the time that you have, you are to choose Christ. Now, I want to break that down a little bit. I said I wanted to be sort of specific and walk us through what this might mean for all of us. I'm going to try to do it in two ways. First, I want to talk about the fact that you and I are called to choose Christ today. And then I want to talk about the fact that you and I are to choose Christ in our day today. We want to choose Christ today, but we're also called to choose Christ in the day today. Let's talk about the first one. What would it mean for you to choose Christ today? And I want to say that this is applicable to you, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are a seeker or you think you've already been sought, no matter where you're at spiritually, this applies to you. 
To choose Christ is to believe what God has said about you. To choose Christ is to believe the truth of what God has said. And this is what God has said about you. God has said about you that you were made in love, that you have been made in God's image, that he has made you so that you would be in a relationship with him, that you've been made good, and that your purpose in life is to dwell in communion with him. That's the first thing, to believe that you've been made by God. You belong to him and you belong to him in love. That's the first thing. The second thing is to believe the truth that even that you've been made in love and made in goodness, you and I have fallen away from that. You and I know that in little ways and in big ways, we make decisions all the time that turns away from the love of who God is. You and I know that. If you look in your life and you look in your heart, you realize that it doesn't even look like you want it to look all the time, let alone the perfect love of God. So to believe What God says about you is to believe that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way to choose Christ is to believe that. But here's the third one, and maybe the most important. To choose Christ today is to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save you. He has come to walk with you. In your fallenness, he has has come to raise you up. And in your sickness, he has come to heal you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. To choose Christ is to believe that the best place for you to be is to be with him at that party. And as far as this parable is concerned and the rest of the scripture, it's really clear. That party is going to come at the very, very end of time, but it's also already begun now. It's to choose to want her to be, en- to be with Christ now and his people, to enter into that party now. And that party takes place when we get together for church in person physically. It takes place when we get together in a place like this virtually. It takes place anytime two or three are gathered to celebrate God's love and to share it with others. That's what it means to choose Christ, to make a commitment and to know that you've chosen that above all other things to believe him and to know that he can save you. And I want to ask you this. I wonder if you've made that decision to choose to believe in him, to think deeply about whether you've chosen to be with him. And as I say that, I know that I sound like one of those preachers on TV. I did not grow up in the church But I did grow up seeing those preachers on TV and they would say, have you made your decision for Christ? Have you chosen Christ? And I walked by those TV preachers and now I kind of sound like one of them, which is a surprise to me. But I am a preacher and right now I am on TV. And I know that that's true, but here's what I also know is true. Listen, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of the sheep. And he lays down his life for his sheep, for you. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and he is trustworthy. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners, and he has come not only to save you, but to transform you. That he has come not only to save you, but to save this world and to transform this world. The very best thing you could do is to choose above all else to be with him and his joy and his love 
and his transforming grace, I implore you to do that. I recommend him to you. He is trustworthy. And so that's the first thing, to choose Christ today. I want you to do that. But it's not enough just to choose him today. It's not enough just to choose somebody. So now I want to talk about what it would mean to choose Christ in the day today. Because you and I know that that's necessary. It's always necessary not only to make a decision in one point in time and then not to follow through on it. That's not really to make that choice. If you were asked to take on a job and you committed and said, I am going to do that job. I sign on the line. I'm going to use my gifts in this way and to say yes to it then and not to follow through, not to commit yourself to that job is not really to make that choice. It's the same when you get married. If you're a married person, when you say yes and make that commitment on that day, that's important. But to choose to make that commitment every day is what's required of you to really, truly be faithful. It's the same thing in friendship. Some of you, if you're in high school right now, high schoolers and college students, will you listen to me for a second? You know that friendship is such a sweet gift. The friends that you have, it's not just enough for you to say to them once, I'm with you. I'm for you. I see you. I'm there with you. You have to let that be known day after day. You have to show it in your words and your deeds. Now, it's the same thing in your relationship with Christ. It is not enough to say, when I was a baby, I was baptized. That solidifies my relationship with God. It's not enough to say, when I was seven years old, I went forward. Or when I was 17 at a summer camp, or when I was 37, I got baptized. Those are all really good things. But what is required here, what is being talked about here, is the persistence and faithfulness of choosing Christ day to day. And the way that I want to talk about this is the way that Jesus talks about it. This parable, Jesus shows that what it means to choose him day after day, he uses the imagery of oil. He talks about whether or not you have oil as representative of whether or not your commitment has been faithful. And so what does the oil mean? What does the oil represent? Well, I said before that most commentators have an agreement as to what most of the things in the parable mean. The bridegroom is Jesus. Everybody says that. But there's a lot of discrepancy about what the oil might mean. And in fact, most interpreters today would say that Jesus probably didn't have a specific and locked in thing that he wanted to have represent the oil. But here's the thing, he did use, he did use the imagery of oil and that gives us some clues as to how we might choose Christ day to day. So Renaissance Church, here's how we're gonna close up. I wanna give you three ways how you can choose Christ day to day in your life. And we're gonna do it by looking at three ways that the Bible talks about oil. Renaissance, I want you to have the oil of priesthood, I want you to have the oil of sacrifice and I want you to have the oil of joy. You should bring that with you to the party. You should bring it with you in your life. And here's how it will go. The oil of the priesthood. You should have the oil of the priesthood. Oil is talked an awful lot about in the Old Testament when they anointed the priests. I'm gonna use just one example. Here's Exodus 29, seven. God tells Moses to anoint his brother Aaron and the rest of the priests with oil. It says, take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. So one of the main uses of oil in the scriptures is for the anointing of priests. Now, 
In the New Testament, it's made really clear. Each person who belongs to Jesus is a priest. Each person who follows after Jesus has been given a priesthood so that we might be ministers to those that God has put in our lives. That we are to be a point of contact between God and the people that he has put into our sphere of influence, our family and our friends and our workplace. We are to be priests. That's your calling. Your oil of priesthood should be filled up and you should be praying for and practicing the love of Christ for the people around you. And that means one of the ways that you can choose Christ in your day-to-day is to pray for and to serve and to love the people around you, to be a priest to them. I want to I want you to think about this. Think about somebody that you know who is a follower of Jesus, somebody that you really respect, somebody that when you look at their life, you can see the light of Christ coming through them, somebody that you thought, man, if I could have their faith, if I could, if I could even follow Jesus a little bit like them, I want you to bring that person to mind. Now, I want you to imagine that this week you get an email from that person. And that person says to you by email, hey, I made a decision. I am going to start praying for you. Every Tuesday morning, I'm going to be praying for you a lot. I'm going to bring you before God's throne. I'm going to pray that God would bless you and bring you peace and that he would lead you into the things that he wants you to do. And he'd open doors for you. I'm going to be praying for you every week. You can give me prayer requests. That would be great. But it doesn't matter whether you do or not. I'm going to be praying for you. Think about how that would feel. Think about how encouraging that would be to have somebody do that for you. Now listen, dear friends, you can be the person that sends that email. You can be the person who is the priest interceding for the people around you in love. Don't run out of your priestly oil. You're called to do this. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. Yes, you are. You are called to be a priest. And all that it takes is the anointing from Jesus. And he has given that to you. Greater is he who is in you than is in the world. The spirit of God is in you. And you can be a priest for the people around you. You know, many of us are feeling overwhelmed in this time. We're looking around in the world and we're seeing the unrest when it comes to COVID and the unrest when it comes to race. We've taken up places politically in one way or another. You and I are called to be priests. What might it mean for you to begin to pray for our country and for our world? Not that your will would be done, not that your opinions would come to the fore, but the peace and prosperity and fruitfulness and joy of Christ would come to the people on your side and also that it would come to the people on the other side, that it would come to the people who've been sick with COVID and it would come to the people who've been serving those with COVID, that it would come to all the people that God has put in your life. You can be a priest. You're called to be a priest. So that's the first way to choose Christ in the day-to-day, to take up the oil of the priesthood. Here's the second one. You should take up the oil of sacrifice. There's an awful lot of references to oil being used in sacrifice. Here's one of them. This comes from Numbers 15. Then the person who brings an offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of olive oil. 
I'm not going to lie to you. It makes me a little bit hungry. I, maybe some of you are enjoying a scone right now. I'm almost done, I promise. The oil of sacrifice was given by people when they had what they were given in life, their resources. Olive oil was often a resource, a commodity, and they offered it up for the kingdom of God. And so one of the ways for you and I to choose Christ every day is to be free in the oil of sacrifice, to take what's been given to us and to use it in the service of God's people and God's kingdom. And for some of you, that's going to be financial. Some of you have been blessed with great finances. So for you to practice the oil of sacrifice, it would mean to give generously for the work of proclaiming the gospel and for the work of providing for the poor, for visiting the prisoners in prison, for bringing sight to the blind physically and spiritually. For some of you, that's the call. Others of you have been given other gifts, other resources. You should find ways to be hospitable or to use the gifts that God has given to you as a way to sacrifice for the kingdom. That's the second way that you and I are called to choose Christ in the day-to-day, to keep up the oil of sacrifice. Now, here's the last one, and then we're done. The last one is maybe the most important. It's the oil of joy. There's a whole lot of places in the scriptures that talk about oil as representative of joy, but maybe my favorite comes from the prophet Isaiah. Sometimes people call him the fifth gospel. But in Isaiah 61, it says that Jesus the Messiah came to provide for those who grieve in Zion. If you're somebody who's grieving today, he came for you. It says he became, came to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He came to put a crown on your head. And he came to put on you the oil of joy instead of mourning. The oil of joy. Part of what it means to choose Christ in the day to day is to do the courageous and hard work of receiving his joy. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially in these times. It's not an easy thing to do to believe that God's intention for you and for this world is joy. It may be especially hard for some of you in this moment. It might be because of COVID or it might be something else. But I know this one thing. I know that Jesus Christ has come to bring you joy, maybe not happiness, but to bring you the joy of knowing that you are God's beloved son or daughter, to receive that love and to know it's for you, to embrace it even in the midst of hardship, and to know that because of what he's done for you, you have a place at that party. Don't miss out on that party. Don't miss out on this one who has come to you, this one who has come for us and our first, for our salvation. My dear friends of Renaissance Church, don't let your oil run out. Keep your oil up. Keep your lamps burning. The bridegroom is coming. He is on his way, and he is going to invite us all into the feast. So don't wait. Don't waste your time. Do everything you can to choose Christ now, today, and in the day today. Amen. Amen.